0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will cover Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 30. It will cover two topics. The first topic is Jesus and the children when he says, Let the little children come unto me. And the second topic is the famous story of the rich young ruler. Our context is Jesus is on his final Parian ministry. In the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 18, we talked about two parables on prayer, the parable of the persistent widow. Asking the unjust judge for her judgment and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus taught on prayer still in his prayer and ministry. The next thing Jesus did was gave his teaching on divorce. This is recorded only in Matthew and Mark and not in Luke. And so now we arrive at verse 18, verse 15 in Luke 18 and we'll continue for, through verse 30 as we cover Jesus and the children and the rich young ruler. And I've already covered those two topics in the exactly parallel place in Mark chapter 10 verses 13 through 31. 13 through 16 is for the children, 17 through 31 is for the rich young rulers. I'm going to splice in my audio from Mark covering these two topics, and that splice begins now. Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies I'm taking up in this audio Mark chapter 10 verses 17 through 31, which is the story of the rich young ruler. We're also going to talk about this story about suffer the little children to come unto me. We'll do that in addition to the story of the rich young ruler. The story of the little children that Jesus said to come unto him is found in Mark chapter 10 verses 13 through 16. Our context is the pre-in ministry of Jesus, He just finished talking about his teachings on divorce. We'll start with Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Some people were bringing little children to him so he might touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. First of all, we need to see what children means. There's, the, Greek words is, the Greek word is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean small children, according to John Gill. The same word that's used here for child was also used in Matthew 18:2, where it says, Then he, Jesus, called a child to him and had him stand among them. So there you've got a child with standing. So that's a small child, but not necessarily a baby. Or the word can mean baby. Now, what was the point of comparison? That Jesus was making between citizens of the kingdom of heaven and children? After all, children can be immature, spoiled, obnoxious, and undisciplined. But, of course, his point of comparison was with the good side of children. They are harmless, inoffensive, free from malice. They're meek. They're modest. They're humble. They're without ambition. They do not desire grandeur or superiority. They're open and receptive. And, of course, that's what Jesus was referring to. Why did the disciples rebuke the kids? Here's a couple of options. Maybe the children were noisy and unruly, and the disciples felt they were interfering with Jesus' ministry. Maybe the disciples felt the children weren't weren't as important as the adults were. I mean, after all, look at the American church. What does the American church do with kids? Shuffles them on off into the nursery. Why? Because things are not as important. The children should not be involved in the important stuff that the adults are doing in the big sanctuary, the so-called sanctuary. Maybe the disciples were afraid Jesus would again use the children as a rebuke to their pride and ambition. That already happened previously up back up in Galilee in, uh, near Capernaum. They'd already done that once. Jesus had already done that once. And maybe they were tired of, getting, of being rebuked because they weren't like children. That's probably not it. That's, a good, that's an interesting speculation. I think they were probably just noisy. And, G- and they said, uh, be quiet. Now Mark has one interesting detail here that the other parallels don't have. In verse fourteen, Matthew ten, it says, "When but when Jesus saw it, he was moved with indignation. He was upset with the disciples for kicking those kids away out." And we also find out in Luke that it was parents that brought the babies, because it said, "And they brought unto him their babies." It didn't say explicitly in Mark and Matthew who was bringing the babies. So here you got parents with their children wanting to hear. Wanted to be blessed by the Messiah, the Son of God, and the disciples say, Nah, y'all beat it. Jesus was pretty mad about it. And he says, you guys don't have the right attitude for the kingdom of God. So we take up now, starting in Mark 10, verses 17, which reads this way. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, we're going to have three parallel passages here. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. We're going to have Matthew 19, 16 to the end of chapter 19 in Matthew. And then we're going to have Luke 18, 18 through 30. We piece those three passages together to get rich young ruler. Luke tells us he's rich, and Luke tells us he's a ruler. Like well, actually, all three of the parallels say he's rich. Luke in verse 18 of chapter 18 says he was a ruler and later on down in the chapter 18 in luke it says he was young actually it's not in luke i'm sorry it's in matthew chapter 19 verse 20 it says he's a young man all right so you put all three of those details together and you get the rich the famous rich young ruler now mark has a couple of extra details First, we see that the rich young ruler ran up to Jesus, and then he kneeled down before Jesus. Now, this running and kneeling showed great respect and civility, according to John Gill. It's not in the parallel versions, but we find here in Mark that this rich young ruler was a good man. He showed Jesus a lot of respect, and we'll see later on as we read that he kept all the commandments. He's He's a nice guy, and he's trying to figure out how he's going to get saved, how he can get saved. now. This story is not a story about riches, not really. Now, there's a lot of talk about riches, but the main point of this thing is legalism. It's legalism. The, The main point is not about the evils of setting your heart on your treasure, which is, of course, a standard teaching in the Scriptures and very important teaching, but that's really not what Jesus is getting at here. What he's getting at here is legalism trying to please God by your good works. That's the main point of this story. Now, in verse 17 in Mark 10 that we just read, the the rich young ruler addressed Jesus as good master. In Matthew, he just calls him master, and in Luke, he says good master. Well, the idea of good master illustrates the whole point here that that the rich young ruler is trying to decide what's good. And he looks at Jesus and he says, this is a good man. I want to be good like him. Again, he's focused on law. How can I be good? How can I be good? We go on to Mark 10, verses 18 through 22, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good but one, God. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at this demand. That's the rich young ruler was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. All right, first of all, the things that are unique to Mark is one of the commandments that Jesus listed that the rich young ruler was was, needed to do was do not defraud. That's actually not in, it's actually not in one of the Ten Commandments, but it's added here. It's not in the parallels. Also, he says, I've kept all these from my youth. That is probably, shows that he went back all the way to the age of 13 when Jewish kids were held to be responsible for keeping the the law. The parallel, and Luke mentions that too, from his youth. Matthew does not. Also, it says in verse 21 in Mark chapter 10, then look at him, Jesus loved him. So that is a very interesting detail that Mark adds. Jesus loved him, then he lays on the commandment. But you like one thing, you've got to sell everything you got. All right, so let's break all this down. First of all, the idea of don't defraud anybody as being one of the commandments, that may represent the 10th commandment that says you shall not covet you shall not defraud somebody, you shall not covet their goods and thereby defraud them, perhaps. If so, says the NIV study Bible, then all six commandments that deal with obligations of man to man are mentioned. The second table of the law, the last six commandments. Now, the fact that Jesus loved the ruler before he laid the command on him, the obligation on him to give up all of his stuff, showed that Jesus was not trying to shame the rich young ruler. He was trying to get the ruler out of his sin and fleshly obedience to the law, as the NIV Study Bible says. Jaberson, Fawcett, and Brown make the point that this is a good lesson for those who think that nothing lovable can be found in the unregenerate. And that is absolutely something worth mentioning because there's a lots of people out there that are just attractive, they're unsaved, but they're nice people because God made them. Common grace. In fact, there's a lot of undergenerous people I, I would like to spend time with a lot of times rather than my fellow Christians. That's just the fact of life. And this guy was a lovable guy. Jesus, and of course Jesus would love even the unlovable. But it, but you can just tell from the story, he's a lovable guy. But he's still not saved. And this also illustrates the point that it's lovable people who oftentimes find it harder to get saved because they think they don't need God just to clean up their lives. You read, but you read these fantastic testimonies about people that are in the murder and robbery and homosexuality and gosh knows what else and they get saved because they know they need jesus but a lot of times good nice people civically righteous people feel like they don't need jesus and this is what kind of guy this guy was his two problems were the love of money and self-righteousness he was stunned the Homer christian study bible translated verse 22 this way but he was stunned at this demand King James says his countenance fell, which doesn't quite give the same impact as stunned, and he went away grieving. Notice that love here is connected with a harsh word, a hard command. God loves you when he asks you to do something you don't want to do a lot of times. He's doing it because he loves you. Just the reason that doctor loves you is he's chopping off your gangrenous limb, and you're screaming and hollering in agony and saying, No, 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 don't do it. It's That doctor loves you because he wants to save your life. Likewise, Jesus loved this rich young ruler. He wanted to save his spiritual life. The parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, has the rich young ruler asking Jesus explicitly after he says, look, I've observed all these commandments. What lack I yet? Or what do I lack? What am I missing? And of course, what he lacks is the peace of salvation, a heart that doesn't condemn him anymore. He knew he didn't have what he needed. He didn't have peace. He didn't have peace with God, despite all of the good things that he had been doing. A minor point here, but the parallel passage in Matthew has Jesus saying, keep the commandments, whereas in Mark and Luke, he just says, you know the commandments. But the idea is, you know the commandments, so keep them. Now, let's take up what is probably the most mysterious one of Jesus's words here he says, "No one is good but one God. Why did Jesus say that right then? No one is good but God. First of all, we note that there is a slight difference on the way that Jesus asked the question of the rich young ruler when you compare the three synoptic passages. in Matthew, in Mark and Luke, Jesus says, "Why do you call me good? In Matthew, he says, "Why do you ask me cons- about things about that which is good?" Why do you ask me about what is good? It's a slight difference, but you can tell that when what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying, why are you so concerned about being good, being good? This is what, this is what's bothering you. Now, Jesus knew that the rich young ruler had a problem with the definition of good and how do you be good and how do you be righteous? And he knew the rich young ruler was self-righteous and he didn't have the righteousness of God. So... He, he wasn't asking the question for information. He was just trying, he's getting ready to point out to the rich young ruler that he's a legalist. He, Jesus said to him, there is only one who is good. Now you notice the is there. He's talking about who is good, not who does good. And it's true. God does good. But the reason he does good is because he is good. And Jesus is trying to emphasize to the rich young ruler, you want to be good. You want to do good. You got to be good. It's not what you do. It's what you are. And the rich young ruler kept saying, well, I've done done this, I've done that, I've kept this commandment, I've kept that commandment. And Jesus listens to him talking. He just kept listening until he finally said, okay, you keep telling me what you've done. I'm going to keep coming up with a commandment that's harder than what you've done to show that you can't keep the commandments. I don't care how much good you've done. You can't do it. And that's what he's trying to do. Now, when he says there's only one who is good, What he's saying is that only God can do perfectly good things, and you, rich young ruler, aren't God. At least that's one option as to what he's trying to say. There's only one who's good, and it's not you, rich young ruler, despite all the good that you've done. I think that's a straightforward interpretation. However, there's some other options as to what Jesus meant. Here's one that's obviously not correct. Jesus is saying, hey, rich young ruler, there's only one who is good, and I'm not, and that's God, and I'm not God, therefore I'm not good. Well, that can't be the niv study bible suggests that is something that's obviously not correct or it could be as gill suggests but denies it could be that jesus was showing anger that the ruler would call jesus good good jesus is saying wait a minute why are you calling me good you need to give glory to god not to me no that's not true jesus did mind people giving glory to himself that's not what it is or option three, which is what I've just suggested, he was trying to get the ruler away from legalism. He's saying, Jesus is saying, in effect, look, you think you are good by doing good works. You're not good that way. Only God is. So don't get on your high horse and tell me how many commandments you kept and telling me that you're good. You're not good. Not the way that God's good. Here's another option, of which I think is clever, but I'm not sure that it, I don't think it's correct, be honest with you. It's the NIV study Bible suggestion. That Bible says that Jesus was trying to get the ruler to realize that the one he was addressing was God. In other words, you're calling me good. You call me good teacher. And there's no one good but one. That's God the Father. He's good. So you've called me good and God the Father's good. So guess what? I'm God too, just like God the Father. Well, that could be what he's saying, but I don't think so. I think he's really focused on the idea of getting rid of the legalism in this guy, and he's saying, no, you're not good like God. He could be saying, I, Jesus, am good like God, therefore acknowledge me as, as God. Or he could be saying, you're not good like God the Father is, so quit thinking that you're good like God is. All these commandments that the, Jesus gave the rich young ruler were all in the second table of the law, which are actually easier to keep. And that's probably why Jesus gave those commandments, the man versus man. How do you treat your fellow man type commandments? Because he perhaps considered that easier to keep. And so he knew the rich young ruler was going to say, yeah, I, I can keep that one. I can keep that one. But you'll notice what Jesus did, though. He saved the, tenth, the covetousness which is the last commandment, the 10th commandment. He, he held that back. He, he said, keep this commandment, keep this commandment, keep this commandment, but he didn't say anything about covetousness, and then he, just, he set the rich young ruler up. The rich young ruler said, I've kept that one, kept that one, kept that one. Then Jesus said, ah, but have you kept the last one? Don't covet riches. Give everything you have away to show that you don't covet riches. Now, the rich young ruler, when Jesus said to, for him to keep the commandments, the rich young ruler in Matthew says, which commandment. Which ones? And that shows a lack of confidence, I think, on the part of the rich young ruler. If Jesus had said, keep the commandments, if the, confident, if the ruler had a sense of righteousness, a sense of peace with God, he would have said, I'm keeping the commandments. You don't need to tell me which ones. I keep them. But he didn't have confidence that he was moral, that he was, had kept all the commandments. And that's why he asked, well, which ones are you talking about, Jesus? And that's what legalists do. They get down in the, into the weeds about, did I do this right or did I not do this right? Matthew adds, has another commandment that Jesus requests that the rich young ruler obey, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's a famous scripture in Leviticus nineteen eighteen, which says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. And notice, by the way, it was perfectly all right to love yourself. Jesus was not telling the rich young ruler not to love himself, not to take care of himself, not to even have money. But what he's saying is you need to love your neighbor. 2. Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. And of course, that's given with a positive aspect as Paul writes that verse. Probably in Matthew, as John Gill says, the reason that's added there, that Jesus adds that, is he wants to summarize and recapitulate all the other particular commandments that he gave. Romans 13.9 says this, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and what other other and whatever other commandments all are summed up by this love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 19:20, the rich young ruler says, "All of these I have kept from my youth." Which what what do I still lack? Matthew only has that detail, the rich young ruler asking, well, "What am I lacking here? I've kept all these, what do I lack?" It doesn't matter how many laws a legalist keeps, he will always feel a lack. Now, this particular legalist, he had many advantages. He was rich. He was young. He had social status because he was a ruler. He was probably a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, probably. Could have been a local synagogue ruler, but since he was rich, that sounds like he was a big shot in Jerusalem, you know, in the Sanhedrin. He was also pious and godly, He kept the law. When I say kept the law, by the way, there's two senses of keeping the law. There's keeping the law perfectly. Without one, nobody ever does that, but that's not what the word means. It means keep it generally, but what I like to call civic righteousness, you know, typically you got people in most towns, you know, they don't steal, they don't cheat, they don't lie, at least not egregiously. They basically keep the law, and, and he had done that, so he was pious and godly in that sense. He spoke sincerely, according to the NIV study Bible, because for him, keeping the law was a matter of external conformity, and that's another difference. Civic righteousness means you keep it hourly so the neighbors don't know. But in your heart, well, that's a different story. All right, so Jesus, well, let's go back to Mark and read Mark 10, verse 20 through 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Notice here that Jesus says to his disciples, he turned around and said to his disciples, he looked around, and that could have been the twelve, or it could have been any other disciples who were around, He says, children, it was common for Jews to call the disciples of wise men children. He called his own disciples children. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus probably saw their surprise and anxiety on their faces when he gave that hard saying, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. This guy's got to give all his money away. Oh, my gosh. Then who can be saved? You're setting too high a standard, Jesus. Well, of course, what Jesus did, he set the high standard. That's the law. And he says, you can't keep the law. You're going to have to rely on me. Now Mark in verse 24 has something the other two parallels don't have. The disciples were amazed at his words. Amazed, the King James has it. They were amazed at his words. They were astonished. As usual, when Jesus taught, he taught some hard, he gave some hard words, hard words. And in fact, Mark and Matthew both in the King James says they were astonished exceedingly. The modern translations just have they were astonished, but how like the King James, they were astonished exceedingly. Who can be saved telling to enter the kingdom of God you've got to give all your money away? Now know that Jesus had put a commandment on the rich young ruler that wasn't in the law, not in the law of Moses nor the law of Christ. Nowhere in the old covenant or the new covenant will you find a command that you're supposed to give all your money away. Why did Jesus put such a hard commandment on that rich young ruler? Well, it was because he was trying to keep, show the rich young ruler that he couldn't keep the law, and he picked out a commandment that went directly to his problem, which was he worshipped money. Now, if it was somebody else, let's say let's say it was Herod, got the wrong wife, stole a wife, well, and Herod says, well, I've been a good Jew, I, I've kept all the commandments. Now, of course, this is not true, but I'm speaking hypothetically. If Herod had said, I keep all, I've kept all the commandments, and then Jesus said, fine, how about this commandment? Get rid of Herodias. See, Jesus was just picking one thing that this particular man was having a problem with. Now, John Gill's got an interesting point here. He says, even if the rich young ruler had have kept that commandment, that still wasn't good enough to give him peace with Christ and righteousness. 1 Corinthians thirteen three, Paul says this, And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So even doing that work wouldn't have gotten the man peace with Christ. But of course, it doesn't matter because the rich young ruler couldn't do it. I'm going to tell a story here. I just went to my high school reunion, met one of America's most successful lawyers. It was in my high school class. He's got more money than the U.S. meant in Philadelphia. He is the best trial lawyer that this state has ever seen. He's ranked, in fact, in the top 100 trial lawyers in America, according to the American Bar Association. Or, excuse me, American Trial Lawyers Association. And he was representing a friend of mine in a law case, and the story had just happened that somebody had offered Mother Teresa the income off of, I think it was $3 million, and she had turned it down because she wanted to rely on God, and not on money, and she didn't want to get tangled up with the love of money. And so this rich w- lawyer, classmate of mine, he tells the story to my, to our, to my other friend, and he breaks down crying. He says, I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she gave up that money. I don't know. And, and of course, the reason was is he was thinking, I'm sure he was thinking, I have, I'm i not free from the love of money, and I don't have peace about it. And the reason I think that is because before I was a committed Christian, I would listen to him. In fact, my sister would listen to him. A lot of people listen to him. Go around preaching the gospel at a time when it just wasn't done. During the hippie era back in the 60s. He would preach the gospel, and it was so powerful, and I felt so convicted when I heard him because I was backslidden, uncommitted, screwed up Christian, whatever you want to call it. And I'd listen to him. i said, say, boy, I wish I had the courage and the boldness that he does. Not anymore, though. It's gone, but he's got lots of money. But does he have peace? And I think the tears he was crying indicated to me that, no, he didn't have the peace. Don't get tied up with money. Now I realize this is not the main point of the parable, but you, we can make a subsidiary point here: is the love of money is the root of all evil. If you, if your, if money causes you to stumble, if it's just like if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And this is what Jesus is telling this rich young ruler. It's a hard thing for him to do, but he did it. Now. Again, I'll point out to you, even though those were hard words, Jesus was not harsh because in Mark 10, it says this in verse 21, Then looking at him, Jesus loved him. It's a loving thing to tell people not to sell their souls to money. It's a loving thing to tell them they need to put away their homosexual partner or their, their mistress or whatever it is that they're doing that's obviously contrary to the design and plan and will of God. Jesus often tests our faith. He tested Peter's faith when Peter... Got out of the boat in the storm. Jesus said, "Come here, Peter. Come walk on the water." How about the Syrophoenician woman? She wants to get her demon-possessed daughter healed, and Jesus said, "No, I don't think I'm going to do that because you're not. You're a Gentile, and I'm only come here for the, come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're just going to have to do without healing." Why did he do that? To test his disciples. Those are hard words, but he came through when people showed an attitude of faith and responsiveness. Then Jesus says. Follow me, tells the rich young ruler. Follow me. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples to follow him? Here's some scriptures in Matthew four nineteen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Matthew eight twenty two. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Matthew nine nine. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, Follow me. So he got up and followed him. Mark two fourteen. Well, that's a parallel passage. So that's what Jesus told his disciples, follow him. Now, unfortunately, the rich young ruler didn't follow him and didn't give his money away. You wonder whether he ever became a disciple of Jesus. I hope he did. I hope later on he thought, you know, this money, I can't take it with me when I go. I think I'm going to follow Jesus. I think I'm going to become a Christian. I hope so. Now, notice that Jesus is not talking about giving all of your money away. He's not teaching asceticism or what do they call that? The poverty, the monastic poverty. He's not teaching that. He was preaching discipleship, follow Jesus. And the rich young ruler's wealth was an obstacle to that. So he's saying, get rid of your wealth so you can follow me. And that's the main point. It's not how much money you got, rich young ruler. But the main point is, are you going to follow me? All right, Jesus, after the rich young ruler, crestfallen. I think he left, actually. Well, actually, it doesn't say He left. But after Jesus asked that impossible, near impossible request of him, well, he did go away. It says here in Matthew 10:22, he went away sorrowful. He left. And then Jesus turned around and had a teaching moment with his disciples. And he says, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle from the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you know, that really is true. Paul said there are not many rich, not many powerful to come to the kingdom. It doesn't mean it's impossible. Joseph of Arimathea who was a rich man and who had a rich graveyard that Jesus was buried in. He was a disciple. Abraham was rich. There have been lots of rich people who followed Jesus, but not percentage-wise. Most people who follow Jesus are poor because it's, well, you know, money has a powerful attraction on people. My favorite scene in uh, the Lord of the Rings movies is that scene with Gollum. He's going, my precious, my precious. He, He grabs that coin. Because he's totally hollowed out as he's got no humanity left in him. He's just basically a demon ghost spirit because the love of money ate him up. So Jesus is just telling the truth here. Get a camel through a needle, eye of a needle, faster than you get a rich person in the the kingdom of heaven. Here's a good time to quote 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him the love of money is the root of all evil i can't tell you how much times how many times i said that in china china is, is making money hand over fist and they've been frightfully poor for so long and oh my gosh oh my god and and they're not even shamed ashamed about saying oh yeah i want to get rich i love money they don't have a bit of shame about saying that it's not like our culture we we don't like to admit it but well, they they don't care about admitting it over there so i had to keep saying that over and over again now, I believe in prosperous economies. I hate poverty. I want to see economies develop. I want to see people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and every other idiotic socialist in the world go slink away into a cave somewhere because they're bringing about poverty on the earth, like in Detroit, like in Venezuela, and like in Africa during the 1960s and 70s, like in China uh, before Deng Xiaoping. I don't like bad economies. Because I think prosperity is a good thing. But one bad side effect of prosperity is a lot of people get rich and they think that's all there is to life. It's not true, folks. By the way, I read somewhere a long time ago that people say this eye of a needle should really be a small aperture in a wall. And it's easy to get a camel through this small aperture in a wall. A loaded camel couldn't make it through. Then it would be for a rich man to get into the kingdom. I don't think that's what is true. I've seen it refuted somewhere else. I can't remember where. I think it's just easy it was an old proverb camel through an eye of a needle that works fine now let's look at the disciples response the disciples response to this statement that it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the god enter the kingdom of god they were more astonished and they said well then who can be saved now the immediate problem here is why would the disciples say that it seems to me that they could just say, well, if you're not rich, you can be saved. They didn't say, well, then how can a rich person be saved? They said, who can be saved? Like anybody can be saved. Why is that? Why would they say then who could be saved? Sounds like the disciples thought everybody was rich, as Adam Clark points out. Well, here's two options to solve that. According to Adam Clark, they attached a different meaning to the word rich than we do. They merely meant someone who wasn't in penury, starving to death. I don't. The reason I don't think that's right is because the rich young ruler was not someone who was merely not in penury and not starving to death. He was somebody who was loaded. The best answer, I think, is this. The poor in the kingdom will be oppressed by the rich. Jesus is saying rich people aren't going to be saved, therefore they're not going to be in the kingdom, and therefore they're going to be opposed to the kingdom. Therefore they're going to give us poor fishermen trouble and oppression, and so... And so the disciples are saying, oh my gosh, if the rich people are going to be against us all the time, then who in the world, how can we be saved? And by the way, it says saved. We don't know whether that's saved temporally or saved spiritually. Maybe they're just saying, how can we be saved from their oppression? I think that's what they're talking about, especially since the whole context now of this teaching is he's getting them ready for the, this, the, the oppression and the persecution that's about to come on them because he's getting ready to be crucified and they're going to be chased from synagogue to synagogue. I think that's what's happening here. And Jesus reassured them in verse 27 in Mark 10, looking at them, Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. In other words, you're going to be saved. Those rich people aren't going to get you. They're not going to persecute you. Now we have Peter's response to this, to this thing, to this statement that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible with men for that to happen. But, you know, with God, things are possible. Peter sounds a little bit guilty. Mark 10, verse 28 through 31. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Peter is relying on his good works. He's left his business, which he had done. He left his fishing business and left everything he had. Now, he wasn't rich like the rich young ruler, but proportionally speaking, he left everything he had. So, I mean, it's all, he basically did exactly what the rich young ruler was supposed to have done. He left everything he had. Jesus answers in verse 29, I assure you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and, fe- and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, now if you compare the three parallel passages, they mention family members. Uh, they mention sisters, mother, father, brothers, or brethren. So every possible family member that you can get that you might have to give away for the gospel. Mark mentions lands. Matthew mentions lands. That you might have to give away for the gospel. That just stands for money, just like the rich young ruler was supposed to give away. Luke adds wife. You have to give a wife away. Now, that's something. Left your wife. That doesn't mean he's not advocating divorce, but, you know, I can imagine a situation where a wife might not believe and might give you a lot of trouble. And, of course, you can apply that to husbands, too, although that's not mentioned. You give all that away, and you're going to get it all back. And not only are you going to get it all back, you're going to get it back a hundredfold. And I would suggest to you that you try that. Try just not holding on to anything just give it all up for the Lord, and you see if he doesn't give it all back. I can speak from personal experience. That's exactly what he does. And when he says a hundredfold, that doesn't mean you, you sit down there and count it out. Oh, well, I gave away $10, so I got 10 times a 100 a $1,000 back. It's just an expression that means lots and lots and lots and lots and lots more that you go get back. And, of course, you might ask, how can you give away brothers and sisters? Well, it means that you don't follow their lifestyle. You don't follow their dreams, their ambitions, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean you literally give them away, but you leave what they want you to do for the gospel. And there's a, sac- a certain sacrifice to the gospel. There's no getting around it. You have to tear yourself away from the world. And this is in the context of the rich young ruler. So he's saying, look, yeah, Peter, you did it. And there's lots of sacrifice that it goes with the gospel, but by golly, there's lots of reward too. Now, notice that Mark has this interesting word, along with all those family members you're going to get back and that means the 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 love and appreciation of your family members and and the money and the lands that you're going to get back after you give it all away is you're going to get, and you're going to get eternal life by the way the, all three of them you are going to get eternal life that's the most important thing but mark actually says that in addition all the, all the family members and the lands and all you're going to get persecutions so this is not a verse that promises you easy street in this life. There's so, so many military metaphors, warfare metaphors in the Bible, because this is a veil of tears, buddy, and we're in a battle to the end. The world, the flesh, and the devil are never going to let up. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, you're going to have some persecutions, but in the midst of the persecutions, in the midst of all that, you're going to get everything back. Now, the timing of that is up to him. Well, Obviously, you can't get 100 times more land, At the same time, you get persecutions because if they persecute you, they're going to take your land away, as in Hebrews chapter 11. So that's an interesting verse, but it's a a comforting verse. You give everything up, and he'll give you everything back. John Gill says that this verse means that you give up physical relatives, and then Christians receive back spiritual relatives, brothers and sisters in Christ. And that, I think, is probably exactly what Jesus was talking about. Notice he has, you'll get it all back in the age to come, eternal life in the age to come. The age to come often means the Messianic age, which is started at Pentecost, not at the end of the world. So I suspect that's what he means here. You're going to get eternal life starting in the age to come. Because, I mean, right now I've got eternal life, even though I'm not in heaven, i still got eternal life. And the age to come is the Messianic age. That term, Messianic age, is an interesting one. I've got four different translations, and you'll see how different the translations are. In the Holman Christian Study Bible, this is in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, which is not in the other two parallel passages, but in Matthew twenty-eight, Jesus says, I assure you, in the Messianic age, you're gonna get all that stuff back. In fact, let's just go ahead and, and read this section in Matthew, which is not in the parallel passage. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, Jesus Said to them, I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the question is, is when is that Messianic age? Other translations, the NIV says, in the renewal of all things. In the KGV, it says, in the regeneration. In the English Standard Version, the ESV, it says, in the new world. Well, what are the options as to what that age is? The church age, according to John Gill, and I think he's right, it could be the millennium. I think I don't believe in a, a thousand-year earthly millennium, so I, I certainly don't uh, believe in that option. And one thing that helps me not believe in that option is that Jesus promised persecutions in the age to come. We're going to have persecutions in the millennium? We're going to have persecutions in the final state? I don't think so. But in the church age, yes, you could have persecutions. So we get persecutions as well as lands and other relatives. We get them back now, not later in the future, at the end of the world. And the other option is it could be the very end of the world, the final state. I don't believe that. I believe that Gill is right. It's talking about the church age, the messianic age when Jesus established his church after Pentecost. Here's some arguments for that. Here's one way you could translate the verse. You, have, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory. So, it, so it's, it's when you have, you who have followed me in the regeneration, not when you will sit on the throne in the regeneration, but you have followed me in the regeneration. depends on how, you, you know, the Greek word order is chaotic a lot of times. It's hard to tell where the adjectives go. But if you say the following is in the Messianic age, then that means the following would have to be in the church age, the disciples follow Jesus in the church age. But actually, that translation is not really necessary to adopt that option. You can just believe it in the way it's translated here in the Homer Christian Study Bible. I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that could easily just right there. The Son of Man considering his glorious throne in the church age. Not only did the disciples follow Jesus in the church age, but the Son of Man is sitting on his glorious throne in the church age. He's already sat on it, Hebrews 8, one. Now the main point of what is being said is this: We have this kind of high priest who sat past tense, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in the heavens. When he was when he was ascended, he sat on the throne of God. Now I realize, there's a lot of theology involved in this. A lot of old-time dispensations don't believe that Jesus s- sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty until the and he doesn't do that. And he won't do that until the millennium. Progressive dispensationalists have changed that, and may God bless them for that. Because yes, Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty now. He's already sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. So this is in the Messianic age. These apostles, these humble fishermen who've given everything up to follow Jesus, they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And you say, well, wait a minute. 12 tribes of Israel in the Messianic age? Well, the 12 tribes of Israel stands for the church, just as in the book of Revelation. Excuse me, just like as in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 8.8, 8. but finding fault with his people, he says, look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, that's with the church, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How can the new covenant be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah? The new covenant is with the Christian church. That's because the house of Israel and the house of Judah are typological forerunners of the Christian church. The prophet Jeremiah couldn't prophesy in terms of the church. That didn't exist then, so he he testified In terms of the type of the church, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it's the same thing here when Jesus says the apostles are going to be sitting down judging the 12 tribes of Israel, it means that the apostles are going to be in charge of the church during the church age, and so it won't matter. And they'll have eternal life, and it won't matter that they gave up everything they had to follow Jesus. So Peter is getting a pretty good response. What will they be for us, he tells, he asks Jesus, well, hey, you're going to be judging the church. You're going to be leading the church. You're going to be leaders of the church. Now, I'm sure they didn't understand that at the time, but later on, after he died and things started developing in front of their eyes and they saw the gospel spreading, they realized what Jesus meant. Notice it's the 12. That doesn't include Judas, but Judas has been replaced by Matthias eventually. I say has been, he will be replaced by Matthias. So the 12, that's a standard term for the 12 disciples. Now, by the way, all this giving up stuff, family members and lands and such, that only refers to situations where there's a conflict between your earthly responsibilities in the kingdom of God. You don't need to be causing conflict with people if there's no conflict. What happens if if you have money and you're using it righteously and it's not getting in the way of your relationship with God? Well, then no, you don't have to give it away. Or if you've got family members that are following God, and they're not, or, or even if they're not Christians, but they don't cause you to say you've got a a husband that is not saying you can't worship Jesus and go to church, well then, hey, you don't have to give him up because he's not causing a conflict. This is talking about when there's a conflict. One other difference in the synoptic parallels here, Mark and Luke add in this time, you will receive a hundred times more in this time. In other words, this is not talking about in heaven or in the so-called millennium, which I don't believe in, or in the final state. He's talking about now, which, of course, would be while they were living in the church age. So if you want wealth and relationships, give away wealth and lose relationships, unhealthy relationships that are tearing you away from Christ. Jesus finishes up his discussion here when when he says, he, many, in verse 31 of Mark 10, many who are first will be last and the last first. Those who are first are the rich people. Like the rich young ruler, they're going to be last because they're not going to get into the kingdom. But the ones who were last, like these poor, ignorant, well, they weren't totally ignorant, but they were poor, these poor, powerless, and, and some of them were uneducated fishermen, they're going to be first in the kingdom. They're going to be leaders in the kingdom. I mean, there's a lot more people to remember Peter than they remember the rich young ruler. Peter gave everything up. Rich young ruler kept everything. We're still talking about Peter 2,000 years, When well, we're talking about the rich young ruler 2,000 years later, too, but not in such a positive light. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that ends this audio on the rich young ruler and also the short story of Jesus saying, Suffer the little children to come unto me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have just returned from my splice of my audio in Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, concerning the rich young ruler. So we're finished with this audio. That will set us up for the next audio, which will cover Luke 18, verses 31 through 43, during which Jesus will heal a blind beggar on the road to Jericho. I hope you enjoyed this audio.